Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Today, my guest is Simon Russell, Director of Behavioural Finance Australia. And today, I thought we would sort of touch on the concept of market narratives, which is the title of this podcast, and sort of get a bit of a, a contrasting view in terms of how Simon thinks about the, the title market narratives. You know, initially, when I started this, this concept of, of market narratives as a, as a podcast series, it was really to try and agitate and think about stories and, and how stories influence people and society. Simon, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. When you hear the market narratives, you know, how, how do you think about its, its role in, in day-to-day life and markets? Uh, well, I think about it in sort of a, a fairly mixed way, to be honest, because it has both positive and negative connotations. But if I, I guess, go back to first principles and say, what do I think about narratives specifically? Well, for me, they're, this, they're the stories that people tell themselves that give meaning to their experiences, that help them understand and make sense of the world. Uh, and typically, these uh, narratives have some level of causal explanation. So they're highly functional. You think without this sort of stuff, we'd, we'd just be living in a complete um, daze of confusion. Um, and, and so it's been very, a very effective way for us to function over millions of years and still a modern day society, very effective way of making a whole range of different decisions in quite often relatively simple contexts. It's just that it can lead to particular challenges and difficulties when we come to amb- ambiguity and uncertainty, the sorts of things that you see in investment markets. How do you, how do you think about it in terms of the the ability of of hurting? Right, I know people use it as a shortcut. You know, it's one of those ways that the narrative is a good way to influence the masses, um, and people can jump behind it because it makes their life easier. But then, how do you think about sort of the potential and the complexity that comes from this in terms of problems? Um, yeah. When- well, and in terms of problems, I mean, it's I think it's quite multifaceted. So if you look at just one aspect of it and say, well are these narratives helping or are they harming? And I mean, if there's, uh, so there, there are often distortions between the narrative and, and the, the, the distortions are that they give us a false sense of the certainty that we can have about causality, that we, we think we understand stuff better than we do. And in a simple world, like if I pat a dog and the dog wags its tail, well, I can probably put one on one t- together to make two and say the dog, me patting the dog makes the dog's tail wag. I could probably even extend it and say me patting the dog, the dog likes that, it makes the dog happy, the dog wags its tail. All that seems to make sense, but I don't know, maybe someone else is scratching the dog's chin or maybe the dog was going to wag its tail anyway. This, there's a bit of ambiguity there, but not much. The challenge then becomes in investment markets when we just – we have a, a causal explanation, a narrative that makes a hell of a lot of sense. But as we've seen very recently, and you look at you don't have to look very far in, in COVID pandemic world to see examples of this. I mean, if you, if for example, were to say, um, what's the, um, what do you think will happen if you have a whole lot of people, or if there's a viral pandemic? What do you think the impact will be on um, the hospital system? And you think, well, geez, there'll be a lot of sick people, a lot of people in hospitals. Well, actually, no, the hospital system's largely deserted, at least in Australia, and the general practitioners are sort of short of patients coming in because people are staying home and they're not having their regular health checks. 
um, this. So there's a, there's a heap heap of those sort of things. Did, what do you think a virus will have on the to- impact on toilet paper? Right, there's a, it's not very difficult to find a whole range of these sort of things where causal explanations end up being wildly off the mark. And in some cases, 180 degrees or away from what actually has turned out to be the case. So that's that's sort of, I, I guess, and we can dig, dig into that in some detail, that's the challenge where a narrative can, can give us that false sense that we understand what's going to happen and therefore lead to sort of erroneous decision-making. How, the benefit. Yeah, Sorry, go for it. I was going to say, so how, how much of, of that sort of inbuilt narrative that people have is, is based on, you know, they're growing up in their environment versus sort of this media that's here and now and that drives them? You know, are there two different types of people in, in terms of how they're thinking about, you know, these, these, these forces? Uh, I, I think it's probably a, a bit too simplistic to say there's two different types of people, but certainly I think both of those two things that you've described can have a significant impact. So the, the people's early formative experiences then can have a long-lasting um, impact on their subsequent uh, behaviour and decision-making and uh, an ongoing impact to the extent that you can it can con- then continue to have a, if you like, a confirmation bias effect on you so that you you sort of immunise yourself to future information that is inconsistent with your past beliefs and expectations and you systematically hunt for information which confirms those beliefs and expectations. So, so, so in one sense you think, okay, what, what we've done early on is going to make a big impact and there definitely is some truth to that. But the reverse aspect or a different aspect of the psychology that's going to impact people is the salience. So how much does something capture your attention and therefore drive your decision-making? Now, some things are inherently more salient, more visual, more vivid than other things, but the things that tend to be salient often are the things that have happened most recently. So so this is why I guess we're all sort of um, responding to the most recent sort of market moves and daily news cycles. And how often do we go back and look at a 100-year track record of the S&P 500 or Australian property prices and and factor those long-term historical performances into our decision-making? Well, much less frequently than perhaps we should. It's incredible. The, the the example of the Australian housing market is a great one, right? Where there's 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 all these people that are holdouts. I, I have to admit that I'm probably one of them thinking that things are overvalued and they're overvalued. But you realize that if the narrative keeps going, that it never goes down, that it almost sucks everyone along on the journey. Yeah, um, well, it's, so it's sort of self-perpetuating, isn't it, in that case? And, and so that's what I think about even in terms of the markets. You know, and if you look at sort of the more recent market you know, action, particularly in the US after the COVID, you know, impacts and, and the impacts are continuing. And we've seen continuing job losses around the US and in Australia and the markets seem to be disconnected. You know, is this just, again, this this narrative that everything comes good? You know, they, they look at the the analog being 2008 and say, well, you know, we come back. So, so the, you know, money comes back into these, into these sectors as people try to front run effectively the, the better times. Yeah, I mean, but but I I tend to think there is just so much inherent uncertainty in here. I mean, even if you look at uh, I don't know first order effects. So let's think, God, what what's the implication going to be for uh, commercial real estate? Well, it's going to be there's going to be a whole lot more people who are working from home. So the theory goes, um, because we've developed new habits and broken old barriers and yada yada yada. Um, therefore, if there's a whole lot more people working from home, there will be much less need for commercial real estate. Therefore, commercial rents will, vacancy rates will increase and rents will, rents will reduce and prices will reduce. So there, there's one narrative. But, geez, it's pretty damn easy to think of the reverse and say, well, yeah, but in the office we're going to have to spread people out a lot more 
therefore far fewer people could fit in an office, therefore we're going to need more office space. And you get to the completely the opposite scenario. And, and we just don't have the historical experience. We can't go and look at five other pandemics in the recent historical sort of record. We have to go all the way back 100 years and find something that was, sort of, I guess, different in many other ways. So we really just don't know. So to me, we, the, the narratives that when we don't know which narrative is right, each of them risks giving us a false sense of comfort and false sense of confidence that our particular narrative, the one that we happen to have, is right. When probably the reality when, we, when we're facing uncertainty is that anything that we, any belief that we hold with high confidence is probably going to be wrong and therefore we should factor in some reversion so that the, the people who think there's going to be no need for office space are probably wrong. The people who think there's going to be a lot of need for office space are probably going to be wrong. The answer is because just because there's so much uncertainty in those causal explanations just aren't going to be as right as we think, the answer is probably going to be somewhere closer to the middle. So, so, but how do you how do you build in this sort of diversity in thinking? I guess in terms of you know asset managers, asset owners, you know, th- there's a real challenge, you know, because th- this this is something that you need to have open for debate. Um, you know, so how how do you how do you do that? Have you got any sort of thoughts on on that? Well, I think there's a few things that are potentially absent from some of the conversations that can be factored in. One to me is that the causal explanations are often a sort of more qualitative um, step-by-step sort of, if you like, decision-making process driven by people, and which is fine. I mean, there's, there's great validity in using th- those sort of processes in some circumstances, but there's less validity in using that where we're facing um, increasing uncertainty, ambiguity, um, for example. And that's just what we're facing now. So in those sort of situations, we should be factoring in more of the uncertainty, which often can be conveyed in statistical processes that we just don't tend to recognise sufficiently. So you look at the decision-making research, it will say, well, people tend to use what's called the inside view, their own perspective, um, more weight that more heavily in their decision-making research than what's sort of, quote-unquote, the outside view or the base rate, the sort of statistical average, what happens most of the time in most circumstances. And in those sorts of situations, well, we need to factor in more mean reversion. We need to be less confident about the sort of the the, um, the ranges of expectations we have for uh, share market valuations. So there's a, there's a bunch of those sort of statistical sort of um, processes. I think perhaps we need to be relying on more so in these sort of situations when that those causal explanations are, are less valid, less likely to hold as much water. Um, but then. Perhaps as we were talking about just earlier offline is the idea of sort of diversity in decision making, diversity in group decision making as well, which links very nicely in with the um, the research by Tetlock and his uh, um, some of his books like Super Forecasting, for example, which say, well, what's the best way to forecast when you're facing difficult, uncertain decision making with ambiguity in a range of contexts, so political, economic, and others. And it's his conclusion, his broad conclusion is you need to forecast like a fox. Um, a fox rather than a hedgehog and what he meant by that was foxes are the types of forecasters who um, capture a range of different perspectives they're they're willing to take rather than one sort of large ideological position they're willing to incorporate multiple views they take a probabilistic approach to it rather than taking sort of an extreme this black and white version of it they're willing to update their beliefs every time a new piece of information comes along so it's that sort of approach as an individual you can capture multiple perspectives as an individual but as a team, potentially, people can contribute multiple perspectives in a team environment as well. I think I think that that's amazing in terms of the the, the all the different perspectives that are out there. 
And so you've got this perfect environment of what you need to have to be the super forecaster. But you know, the challenge that I see, and if I take it back to the Australian market of the super fund industry, you know, it feels like this club and, and this idea of peer awareness makes people sort of wondering, like questioning their, their ability to forecast. And so they make decisions sort of, you know, they sort of try to have a slight edge, but at the end of the day, they don't want to be too different to themselves. And, and this ability to be the super forecaster, are you going to be really rewarded for that? Or should you just sort of try and, you know, go half-hearted into those decisions? H- how do you think about being, you know, being someone who, who can make better decisions um, versus sort of the, that peer awareness and, and that conformity to a group? Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, it's a, a significant challenge. And um, I mean, you've, you've got to balance the idea, I guess, that um, to, to add value, you need to be different from everybody else. I mean, otherwise, markets will already factor that view into the world. And so you're not going to add value if you're just the same as everybody else. And yet, to be different from everybody else is exceptionally, exceptionally hard. It, most of the time when you're different from everybody else, you're probably wrong. There's sort of wisdom in the crowds a lot of the time. So to me, that means um, recognizing the fallibility of individual judgments and saying, I really want to be really different from anybody else just because I'm probably going to be wrong. But I want to be sensitive to those perhaps few cases where really the balance of probabilities are that everybody else is wrong. Now, that, that might be the rare exception because it's, gosh, it's, um, I mean, it's particularly overconfident to sort of say, look, everybody else is wrong, but I'm right. But that can happen some, some of the time, and there would be, for me, a, a, a range of indicators which would rarely happen but would happen occasionally where markets are particularly extreme in the valuations. And it's obviously it's hard to identify some of these things in the moment. Like you look back to the technology boom, for example, and say, well, that was a clear example. Look at the valuations we had back then. But by goodness, it was difficult for people who were betting against those valuations in the years leading up to it and getting it wrong year after year after year as the market continued to go up. So there's some substantial sort of organisational or industry level challenges in in backing yourself, I guess, in those cases where you really do have enough um, confidence or you should have enough confidence to be different from the crowd. And we, and we see that even in, in the the allocation to value investing mm. of late, you know, there just seems to be something that's absolutely hated because it's performed poorly. Um, and yet, despite the research, you know, it, it should provide some sort of margin of margin of um, of safety there for people so you know you've got this situation where you might believe it because the research tells you but you you're doing poorly over the next 6 12 24 now it seems like almost 10 years <laughs> when 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 does it uh it turn around and so you know the market narrative is like give up uh and value investing is dead um yeah. but then it's it's these points where you almost get tipping points where the whole market's gone one way that it collapses and it reverses. And so that's the other thing that's always very interesting to me. How, how do you sort of be that person that, that can sort of see that tipping point, you know, where the reflexivity starts to kick in? And we saw that after 2008 in, you know, in the housing loan market where a number of people bet very heavily against the mortgage-backed securities. Um, but again, it was, a, it was a long, long grind of a th- three, four, five years in some cases where people were calling it out. Um, and how long do you have, I guess, in, in this sort of industry to to be that lone wolf that's calling something out but yet still underperforming in the meantime? Yeah. Look, I think the value investing one is a fantastic example because for me that is where we've got what I've referred to as a long-term statistical base rate or an average, which is that value tends to outperform 
uh, growth over long historical periods, despite the fact being that there can be substantial inter interspersed periods where growth outperforms value or, or in which there's no difference. So that's the base. That's a base rate. Another base rate is when, whenever value underperforms by X amount, and I think we're at one of the extremes where, okay, it's, I don't know, I'll make a number up off the top of my head, but let's say it's been 30%, it might be 50%, I don't know. Anyway, it's a, it's a large number. So let's look at all the cases where value has underperformed by that amount over a historical period. And then what happens after that? And I'm guessing, but maybe there's five cases of that happening in the last hundred years. Maybe I'm making it up, but it's a small number. And what's happened in that, in those cases? Well, what's happened in those cases was that value um, massively outperformed growth in the subsequent period thereafter. So, so these to me are the, are the base rates that we should be looking at and going, okay, this is what happens on average in these circumstances. Now, how much confidence do we have in the narrative to weigh against that statistical base rate? And here to me is where the, the narrative can give us an undue sense of confidence that we know what's going on. We'll have some sort of causal explanation, uh, a, a bit like the virus will cause a run on the hospital system, um, which in our case it didn't, but other countries, of course, did. But in the case of value investing, that leads us to think value is dead. And to me, that is the perfect time to be investing in value, in value managers or value stocks. Is part of the reason also that we just sort of lost our touch with history as well? You know, I think when when I was growing up, you sort of taught a lot of history in, in school and so forth, and you constantly refer back to history, and it feels like that seems to have disappeared. And and you know, even even the two thousand eight crisis or the two thousand two thousand and one dot com crisis, most people have no idea um, because it's not sort of taught, and every this time is different is is constantly put forward. Um, and is that sort of the reason why this, this lemming effect happens and you've got markets that continue, you know, in an unabashed way, I guess is one way to describe it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because it's, I think it's both the past and the future we have this problem with. And, and the problem is that they both lack salience. That they are both abstract uh, things that don't attract our attention. And the future in particular is this un, sort of uncertain probabilistic thing that might happen in the future. But the same with the past. I mean, you just it just it's not in your face every day like the present is. And the stuff that you you consume that you pay attention to, it just has a, a much more significant impact on or tends to have a much more significant impact on people's decisions, which is which is interesting because you look at the the future one, and that's where you you start to see research that says, well, you put people in brain scanners and ask them to think about themselves, and you can see a pattern of brain activity. You ask them to think about a stranger and you see a different pattern of brain activity and you ask them to think about themselves their future self as a retiree and you see a pattern of brain activity that looks more closely resembled to to um, the stranger when thinking about the stranger so we have this massive disconnect with this is yourself but it's your future it's a future version of yourself in the future it's as if that person is a stranger and i, I do wonder whether some of the same dynamics apply in the past because certainly the lack of salience applies in the past that some things are different about the past of course but the, the, it's the same idea e each is going to be underweighted compared with just all the stuff that we can feel we can see we can touch we can taste in the present day is part of this problem coming back to sort of the the technological change that we've got on social media and and you know access to media everywhere you know is, is that now enhanced or or enhanced probably not the greatest word to use in terms of you know stimulated people's minds so much to be here and now and not reflect on the past? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because one, one of the things I talk to client engagement professionals in funds or, or financial advisors about is how they manage their clients' attention. And uh, one of the examples I'd like to give is that 
Well, you look back at all the problems that we've had over the last, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, you go back to the GFC and we've had SARS and we had a Greek bonds problem and we had Brexit and we had Trump. Like, I don't know. We had all these things. And each time you could probably mark a little spot on the, on the S&P 500 or the ASX 200 about where that thing was and the dip we suffered. And you could probably go back and look at all the news stories that happened at the time. But if you were on a desert island the whole time, if you were completely unaware of any of this sort of stuff and just put your money in as a long-term investment and just left it there and just came back 10 years later. I mean, you'd see all these tiny little blips on that, on that, um, on that long-term sort of growth chart and think, what was all that noise about? It made no difference whatsoever. It just wouldn't, you'd think that was fine. So yeah, I agree. It's, I think the, the, the way that we consume information, for, which is facilitated of course, by all the, the technology, which has just made it easier, has a significant impact, but also it's a significant opportunity because if that means that, advisors or funds or asset managers can think about how can we use this technology in ways that then create or frame the information in ways that are aligned with good effective decision making then there's opportunities then to better influence clients in particular to make better choices let's dig into that a little bit deeper in terms of member communications or client communications yeah, you know, obviously the biggest challenge is you know people turn on their phone in the morning and they they scroll through the news, they scroll through Facebook or other social media. Um, you know, these are algorithms that are programming them to click on things too, which is typically negative information. You know, how 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 do you know a fund or or a financial advisor sort of maybe try to cut through that that noise? Uh, with difficulty, I would say, but there are some simple things that they can do that align with the research. In fact, some of this research I've done myself. So let me give you um, what is maybe one of the easiest and most prevalent uh, um, things that that uh, investors, uh, well, like a fund or a fund manager or a financial advisor can do. And some funds are already doing this, um, but many are not. And And that is the way that we present returns. So if we're going to communicate uh, a bunch of returns, so I don't know, we've just experienced a, a marked drop in the in the um, in Australian market. So in the next three months, well, the three month return is probably going to look pretty horrific, uh, and the six month return will probably look pretty bad as well, but not as bad. And then the one year and the three year and the five year, well, they'll all look less bad, and the ten year return is probably still quite positive. Um, okay, so if we present a table of returns, like what if you, often you see, you see the table and you see on the left-hand side, you see the three-month return, then as you go a little bit to the right, you see the six-month and the 12-month and then the three-year, the five-year, and maybe since, since, since inception or 10-year or something further to the right. Now, the problem with that approach is that whilst it presents all that information, that's fine, but the thing that people are going to see le- uh, first is the thing on the left. People tend to read left to right, and because they're impacted by the thing that they read first, they're going to see the thing that has the biggest loss, which frankly has the most noise and variability in it, and it's going to trigger loss aversion. It's going to trigger sort of some of the um, negative aspects of decision-making associated with loss aversion. And only if, and there's an if because we don't know whether they're going to scroll the way to the right, but if they do scroll the way to the right, they're going to have, they're going to, what they sell first is going to um, colour how they um, interpret then those longer-term returns. So what you can do as an alternative is flip that around, put the longer-term return on the left. That's what they see. Oh, look, the 10-year return is still 6.7% per annum. Oh, that looks fine. Only if you scroll all the way to the, to the right-hand side do you see minus 11% or whatever it was in the last three months. 
And does that make a difference? Well, yes, it does. So I've tested this, put uh, 400 people in, a, in an environment where I gave them effectively the same decision. They had to make a choice between two different investment options, but half of them saw the returns in, in, a, in a way that was regularly presented. The other half saw it when it flipped around the other, other way from longer-term returns to, to shorter-term returns. And what happened? Well, the people who saw the long-term returns first tended to favour the investment option that had the better long-term returns. So they were less impacted by that short-term noise and volatility. So that's, anyway, that's, that's one example. There's a few more like that, but there's certain things. None of them is perfect, but certainly there are some things that we can do that can um, positively influence members' decisions. And, and to that sort of broader conversation, you know, if for, for funds, right, so you've given one example, but for members, you know, is there a particular timing and, and you know, there's this constant focus on member engagement and keeping, you know, super fund members engaged in their super but is there a potential chance that you know this engagement is is going to you know detract from returns and actually hurt them? <laughs> uh, well, I think yes. I mean, th- this is one of my bugbears that, that we as an industry are saying we need to engage with members. Whereas my, I always ask, well, why do we need to engage with members? Because if the if the answer to that is well, we want better outcomes for members, then to me, member engagement is a possible path to a better member outcome. But it's also possibly for some members a path to a worse member outcome. So if a member has, I don't know, if they're in a, an investment um, option that aligns with their long-term goals, it probably has a, a, an allocation, a fair allocation to growth assets. If they're a younger, a younger investor, for example, if they're contributing to their super, if they've got their insur- insurances in place, like if they've ticked, all, if they've got their, uh, their um, defined their beneficiaries, done their estate planning, I don't know if they if they've ticked those major boxes then us as an industry trying to engage with that person and sending them out a statement saying, hey, look, here's your short-term return and here's a podcast and here's a this. And Sorry, podcasts are awesome, by the way. <laughs> Strike that one. <laughs> but here's all this other stuff. Here's all this other stuff that's, that's in your face. Well, I think we're only going to detract or, or risk d- d- detracting from that person because anytime they over-respond to any of that sort of stuff, they look at the short-term return and go, holy smoke, maybe I should twi- switch back to cash. It's a worse outcome for the, for the, potentially for the member. Which is not to say we shouldn't be engaging with members because if they haven't got those things, if they're not contributing, well, yes, we want to be talking to them about contributions. If they if they switch to cash and we think, well, actually, look, you're, you're missing out on these returns. If you stay in cash for 40 years into retirement, you're not going to get to your retirement objectives. But in those cases, we shouldn't be sending out 50 million letters and emails and um, uh, newsletters and whatever about all sorts of stuff. We should be targeting it to, well, what is the specific behavior that we want this member or we think this member should do to act in their best interests? If it's contri- contributing, maybe we think they can get the government co-contribution. Fantastic. Let's send this particular category of members who are in this lower income bucket with a low balance and a long time to retire or whatever it is. Let's send them a targeted communication that says, Look, Mr. Smith, for you, what you should do is put $1,000 in because you can get this $500 co-contribution. Don't worry about what markets do because, hey, you just got a 50% after-tax return uh, on your investment because of this government co-contribution. This is the best possible thing you can do right now. So that sort of engagement, fantastic. A lot of the other stuff that we're doing, yeah, I do. I, I agree with you. I question whether it's taking some members backwards or forwards. Is there is there also a bit of merit to maybe moving the discussion away from sort of a return as a, as a figure and a number, you know, because we don't, we never, I don't think I've ever seen a statement with any of the standard deviation of the returns actually, but there, but there's always a number as a percentage. You know, can we move away from that sort of financial return and actually sort of talk more about what they're investing in? You know, if you think about Warren Buffett, 
and in his annual meetings, you know, it's a lot of talk about the economy and the in the companies that he owns um, and the environment and the industry that's there. You know, is that maybe something that funds should think about in terms of being almost universal owners and so what they're actually doing to improve the companies that they're investing in and what are the people actually buying as opposed to buying some you know, nebulous financial asset? Yeah, well, I agree. That's a step in the right direction because a percent is an abstract idea. I mean, this is again going back to the issue of salience. How much do things attract our attention? Now, talking about a percent, well, it's an abstract statistical concept that even if people understand what it means, well, it doesn't tend to uh, affect or improve their decision making as much as, say, turning that percent into a dollar. Right? You made a 5% return. What does that mean? Well, it means $12,000. Okay, the dollar makes a difference. Okay, well, how can I turn that into something more meaningful? Well, rather than saying it's a return of $500 or a thousand, whatever it is, um, what does it mean for my retirement income? Well, my retirement income has just gone from being, I don't know, $350 a week to $380 a week. That, that sort of progression can lead people to making more, um, more effective decision-making. There was an example of CBUS, and there's certainly been examples in the US where talking to people about their retirement incomes, which is ultimately... Presumably what we're trying to do as an industry is deliver retirement incomes for people. This is the ultimate game. And, and actually telling them what the implications of these sort of things are for their retirement incomes has been shown to prove, improve their um, improve members' decision-making. So it's that ultimately, whilst I like your idea of providing a bit more tangibility and colour around the companies rather than the, sort of these um, nebulous return informations, ultimately I'd be keen to frame it around what does it ultimately mean for a member and the retirement income is that the good example of that, but also there's a there's a fund that um, told me about an example where they put um, had a technology project to try and put the investment returns. I think the short term investment it might have been a six month return onto member statements instead of just a twelve month return. So if this is an in, in, and this is a major fund, I should say, if if this is an indication of what we're doing as an industry, we're actually doing the reverse. We're doing the reverse of what we should be doing. We're giving them again. A, a less tangible, a less meaningful, a less client-centric number. And it's a short-term number that's, if anything, going to drive their decision-making the wrong way. Oh, look, it's it's a continual challenge. And, and uh, the government's trying to at least encourage people to save for their own retirement, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of good guidelines or practice in terms of that communication. There's a lot of other guidelines that APRA's put out in terms of valuation of assets and how, how to have good governance. But I think in terms of actually achieving member outcomes and communications that go alongside it, there seems to be really no good governance that sits behind that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, I shouldn't tar everybody with the same brush because certainly some funds do it better than others. But I, I do wonder whether as an industry, we just haven't placed enough focus on it. We, we talk a lot about it, but how much really do we prioritize it versus uh, risk management, for example? Now, risk management is important, of course, but when you, when you sit into some of these conversations about well, what's going to go into this email that we're going to send out to our members, well, it seems that the risk and compliance people often have a disproportionate influence on what's going in. And that what that means is that often there's a long wordy disclaimer and a whole lot of stuff that the client's probably not going to, or the member's not gonna, probably going to um, read, but the legal and compliance people want to put it in there for legal and compliance reasons. Now, all these things have trade-offs. We put that sort of stuff in there. Yes, it's protecting the fund from potential liability. There's a good reason for that. 
But there's a trade-off, which is if it means that the client doesn't now long, no longer will read this email or they won't read the important bit of the information that is in the email or they won't understand it because it's now part of a long, wordy piece of text, well, we're essentially prioritizing the risk management, the legal liability of the fund ahead of the member outcome. Now, each of, as I say, each is important, so we've got to make a balance there, but it just sort of seems that that, as an example, is where we say that member outcomes are really what we're focused on as an industry, but actually it comes down the list a bit. And that's sort of often cultural. It's often, I think, embedded across um, funds where it's just it's not the fault of the individuals because everybody every individual is doing the job and trying to sort of meet their, their objectives and do the right thing for members and, and for the fund, fair enough. But it's where do these things fit? Whenever there's a conflict, how do we resolve those conflicts? It doesn't have to be one or the other in many cases. Often when I engage with legal and compliance teams, they're amenable to changing some of their content or changing the order or changing the way it's, way it's written. But where there is a conflict, how do we prioritise that? And I think the member engagement stuff just falls it towards the bottom often uh, for many funds. I think one of one of the things that I've learned today, really quite quite uh, poignantly, is is that communications is just as important as investment decision making at a number of these funds. It it really feels that if you if you can't get your communications right, um, you know, you're not going to be communicating correctly with your members, and your investment decision making actually is is sort of secondary to it. So the, you know communications need to be almost level pegging with uh, your investment decision making in your teams. Yeah, I, well, I think they they are both very important and probably have different levels of importance for different clients. So, I mean, if I'm if I'm a client who is sitting in cash since the GFC because the GFC frightened the hell out of me and and I switched to cash, and I've been in there for the last ten years or whatever it's been, twelve, um, then that for me the member communication is completely the most single most important thing for that particular member because who cares what return you're getting on your balanced fund or on your equity fund or on your private equity or whatever it is because this member is getting none of that. Um, so for that member, it's 100% about communications versus for another member, you can imagine they've been sitting in the balanced option making contributions and doing everything right. Well, for them, I, I want to wind the communications back, give them nothing. They're already in the right track and actually just give them the best possible return I can I can achieve. So I think maybe a bit of horses for courses there. That's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time, Simon. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.